Well, we got the rest of you other than the first three, right? I'm really looking forward to the uh, sermon series that's coming up. Aaron mentioned that every once in a while he's reading through John Ortberg's book. He has to read a passage out loud to Holly. How many of you have ever read a, a book by John Ortberg? Okay, good for you. You get the, the tone of it. I remember the, like the first page of the book or something like that. I mean, the depth of what he says is, is great, but then he's got this humorous way of writing. I think it was on the first page he says, you know, you look back over the last decade and people have said, you think about the, the people that we've lost in our world. Steve Jobs died and Johnny Cash died and Bob Hope died and now we have no jobs and no cash and no hope. Okay, so now you're going to buy the book, right? <laughs> How many of you stayed up till past midnight on New Year's Eve? All right. You know what? When I was younger, that seemed like a really cool thing to do. It was, it was like getting to eat dessert before your vegetables. And now the bed looks really comfy about 9 o'clock at night these days. I've turned into a really boring person. You may have noticed, though, that the sermon title this week sort of wishes you a happy new year, and it sort of doesn't, because the word happy is in parentheses, and you may be wondering what's up with that. Some of you may be thinking, uh, you remember the smiley face, you know, the big round yellow smiley face that Walmart used to use on all the things. Uh, they actually sued for exclusive rights to use the smiley face, go figure. And that was you know, ubiquitous back in the 1970s. It was popping up everywhere. You would see T-shirts and posters that would say, have a nice day, with a smiley face on it. Now it's a little icon in your Gmail, that kind of thing. But back then, some enterprising, grumpy person decided they wanted to respond to that. They were getting tired of all this have a nice day thing. And they changed the face so that it had a line going straight across instead of a smile. And it said, have a day. Right? Instead of have a nice day. Well, if you're thinking that, you might be thinking that because I put the word happy in parentheses that this is going to be a grumpy sermon. And I don't mean it to be. It's just that it's the beginning of a new year. And for a lot of us, when we change over to the new year, we flip over to a new calendar, we get that sense of a fresh start. We get to do a do-over. So symbolically, it's an important time for us. But as we've already wished one another a happy new year, what I want us to do is to think together about what that means. In other words, what does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be happy? Certainly the culture that we live in has lots of ideas on that score. And those ideas come front and center during the Christmas shopping season. Everybody's got something they want to sell you that's going to make you happy. Or is going to make someone else in your family happy. And in a sense, that's what last month's sermon series on the Advent Conspiracy was really all about. A set of countercultural ideas about what would truly make Christmas memorable and meaningful. And I want to continue that line of thinking this morning. We're going to look at several scripture passages. But if you'll indulge me a little bit, what I'd like to do is to draw a little insight from the psychological research first. Because there's been a great deal of work done on human happiness. And I want to draw particularly upon the work of one person whose name I am going to mangle, the good Russian name, Lyubomirsky. She teaches at uh, UC Riverside. 
And she's got a theory, an understanding based on years of research on the subject and reading what everybody else has written in terms of how we should understand happiness and correct some of our cultural preconceptions that are just plain wrong. Now, here's an example of that. We might ask, for example, will more money make us happy? Will more money make us happy? The answer seems to be yes, but only up to a point and only for a while. Now, here's a fact that shouldn't be surprising to us. It's really hard to be happy when you live in poverty. Overall, on average, it's hard to be happy when you don't know if you're going to be able to pay the bills, when you don't know you're going to be able to pay the rent or put food on the table for your family. It's just harder to be happy. So yes, if that's your situation, then having more money will make you happy. And it's easy to think that having more money and more money and more money is going to make us happier. The more money we have, the happier we'll be. But actually, the research doesn't suggest that. doesn't seem to bear that out. Once you're out of poverty, the relationship between happiness and money gets a lot more complicated. Some people have suggested, for example, that once you get above about $75,000 a year, there's no relationship between having more money and being happier. I know some of you are probably thinking, well, just give me $75,000 a year and let me try it for a while. Right? But yes, if you win the lottery, you'll be happy. If somebody gives you a big gift of money, you'll be happy. If you get a raise at work, even a small raise, you'll be happy. But only temporarily. And that seems to be true of a lot of the things that we think will make us happy. They do make us happy. Anything that improves our lot in life is going to make us happy for a while. And we expect that feeling to continue, but it doesn't. Why? Because we adjust. Our expectations go up. We begin to take things for granted, and we go back to being just as happy, or perhaps just as grumpy, as we were before. Now, if that sounds like a little bit of a dark cloud, here's the silver lining to it, because the same thing seems to be true even of the things that make us unhappy. We may suffer a setback or some kind of a crisis or some kind of a loss, and we might think to ourselves, because we're devastated, that things will never be the same, we'll never be able to be happy again, and actually that doesn't seem to be true either. On average, most of the time, even when we suffer that kind of unhappiness, sooner or later, we go back to being as happy as we were before. So here's the upshot of what the research seems to tell us. If we think of happiness as feelings of pleasure, as positive emotions that are generated by things and circumstances, then yes, we can have those feelings, but they tend to be temporary. And moreover, when you compare all of the factors together that explain the difference between why one person seems to be happier than another, then circumstances are important, but they only account for about 10% of the difference between why people don't all have the same level of happiness. 10%. That's a lot less than what a lot of people would expect. It's certainly a lot less than Madison Avenue wants you to believe. So you want to know what the number one factor is, the number one thing that explains why it is that people aren't all at the same level of happiness? You're not going to like it. It's genetics. Genetics, okay? Some people are simply wired to experience more positive emotions than other people are. So you might have people in your family who are the, have a nice day, 
kind of people, and you have other people in your family who are the have-a-day kind of people, and they're just like that. And there's not a whole lot that you can do to change that, but at least we might be able to stop blaming each other for being intentionally annoying, right? We're just kind of like that. So genetics accounts for half of the differences between people in terms of happiness. We spend a lot of time and money and energy trying to change our circumstances because we think that's going to make us happy. And we can do that, but that only accounts for 10%. So quick, what percentage is left? Okay, I didn't hear the same answer from everybody. <laughs> I know, you, you weren't expecting to come to church and have to do math, right? Okay, 40%, right, 40%. So now the question is, what accounts for the other 40%? And this is where it starts to get interesting. One of the challenges that we continually face living in a consumer culture is that we are bombarded with messages that promote a shallow way of thinking and of living for us to follow our desires, to go for the pleasure of the moment, to go for the quick fix instead of staying in it for the long haul. But if you think about it, when you ask people, you know, do you want to be happy? And they say yes. They usually don't mean, I just want to be happy for a few moments or a few months even. They usually mean, I want to be content. I want to have the kind of happiness, that sense of well-being that is more durable than just what happens for the moment. I want to be happy for a long time, right? Now, you might remember a few weeks back, Pastor Aaron gave us a quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. She said, happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct. Okay, happiness is not a goal, it's a byproduct. And that is, in fact, what the research seems to suggest. Because after genetics and after circumstances, what accounts for the remaining 40% of happiness and well-being is the choices that we make about what kind of person we want to be and what kinds of attitudes we want to cultivate. So where do we put our intentional effort? What is it that we cultivate? What kind of goals do we pursue? Do we nurture strong relationships? Are we learning to forgive other people? Do we do kind things for others? Those are the kinds of things, the kinds of choices that make for greater long-term happiness. Am I working at being a grateful person? These are the kinds of things that really count. They reflect the intention to live well and to live rightly regardless of my circumstances. So again, think of the Advent conspiracy. There's a couple of different ways to think about Christmas. There's the kind of Christmas happiness that depends on getting the right thing under the tree. And then there's the kind of Christmas that depends on giving ourselves to the worship of God and investing ourselves in relationship and giving the gifts of time and love and attention. And that's the kind of thing that the research suggests brings lasting happiness. And again, you can't do anything about genetics. You can do something about your circumstances, but it doesn't really contribute all that much. The biggest thing that you can do is to stop chasing happiness itself and live for the things that matter. Now let me say that again. If you want to have a happy new year, ironically speaking, the most important thing that you can do is to stop chasing happiness itself and live for the things that matter. And of course, for us as Christians, the things that matter are the things that matter to God. Now, at some level, we already knew that. 
right? We knew that. We know that the Christian life isn't just about seeking personal happiness. It's not about seeking wealth or fame or comfort, any of those things. It's about seeking the kingdom. We we know that, right? But how well do we know that? How deeply does that permeate into our way of thinking, the goals that we have, the things that we pursue, our priorities, even our way of reading Scripture? Because I suspect that our pursuit of happiness runs a lot deeper in us than we sometimes realize. Here's a case in point. We often misinterpret biblical promises in terms of our happiness. And some of you have probably heard me say things like this before, so bear with me. There are certain passages of Scripture that get quoted again and again and again when people are experiencing some kind of trouble. Somebody comes to you with a prayer request, and we want to encourage them in the midst of their trouble. And so we trot out verses like this one, Romans 8:28, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now, mind you, I think that's a perfectly good text to use to encourage someone because it reminds us that God has a purpose and that God's purposes are good. The problem is that the verse is often taken out of context And it's quoted in such a way as as if to say, just hang in there because God's going to make it all come out fine. Just wait. You'll see. He'll make your situation better. Now, it's true that by the time we get out to the end of the chapter, Paul says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that's a wonderful promise. But if you read the context of the chapter, Paul is talking about the groaning and the suffering that we have to endure in this world and in this lifetime. And that the hope that we have is that our individual lives are part of a story that is much bigger than us, that extends far beyond us as individuals. In the future, it's promised. We will be revealed as God's children and we will be glorified with Jesus. But there is no promise that this will happen before we die. Here's another verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and to not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And this verse gets quoted the same way as Romans 8, 28 sometimes says, Cheer up! God has a plan for you. It's a good one. He wants to prosper you. So name it and claim it. It's all going to be fine. God wants you to be happy. Just be faithful and wait for it. Well, okay, but how long will we wait for it? Read the context of that verse. God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the Jews who are in Babylonian exile. And God actually says, I am the one who carried you into exile out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. Okay? I'm the one that did that. Don't listen to the false prophets that are trying to tell you that this is all going to be over soon because here's the plan. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years before I bring you back. So you might as well settle down, build houses, and start having families because you're going to be there for a while. 
Now again, let me be clear. I think these are wonderful verses of encouragement in context. God is a good God. He has a good and a glorious plan for His children's future that includes all of us. But it's not necessarily about our happiness in this lifetime. At least not the way that we would traditionally understand what happiness is. Now, let me up the ante a little bit by saying it this way. God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. He doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be holy. Now, you know, that's not exactly a great marketing slogan. It's hard to imagine a whole bunch of people lining up and saying, yeah, that's what I want. I don't want to be happy. I want to be holy. Where do I sign up? Okay, But let's try to unpack that a little bit. Listen to what Peter says, for example, in 1 Peter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am am holy. Now before I unpack that verse, let me read you another one. Because when Peter says it is written, he's referring back to an idea that gets repeated in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures. Here's one example of that from Leviticus chapter 20. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Okay? So let's start with the Leviticus passage. And recognize that in that passage, God doesn't say, therefore, you are to be holy because if you aren't, you're going to be in a lot of trouble with me. That's not what he says, right? He says, I have set you apart to be my own. Can you hear the, the intimacy of the relationship in that? From all the nations of the world, I have chosen you. I have chosen you to belong to me. And in the context of that relationship, I want you to be holy. I want you to be like me. Because I am holy. Now if you keep that in mind, then I want you to listen again to what it is that Peter says. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. You see, we are to be holy not as people who fear the punishment of God, but as obedient children who want to be like their father. And being holy isn't just about what we do, it's about how we think. Peter says we are to have minds that are alert, that are fully sober. We need to rethink and to challenge the desires that we already had before we heard the gospel. And we are to set our hopes not on the things that we might get for ourselves in this lifetime, but rather on the grace that we will receive when Jesus comes again. So God wants us 
to be holy. He wants us to be set apart for a relationship with Him. He wants us to be like Him. And frankly, that requires a reorientation of how we think and how we live. So when I say that God doesn't want us to be happy, I don't mean that God wants us to be unhappy. That's not what that's about. Positive emotions are a gift from God. But it does mean that God doesn't want us to be happy in the way that the world defines it. Because the world's definition of happiness falls far short of what it is that God actually wants for us. We need to redirect and rethink the way that we live. Or let me put it to you this way, by substituting another word, a more biblical word, for the notion of happiness. God doesn't want us to be happy. God wants us to be blessed. God wants us to be blessed. If you want to put it more directly, God wants to bless us. And again, that blessedness may require a radical reorientation of our desires, a new way of thinking. Listen, for example, to what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. This is from Luke chapter 6. He went down with them, namely his disciples, and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. And this is what is uh, part of what is known usually as the Sermon on the Plain in contrast to the longer sermon that we have, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. Jesus is standing in a large level place and crowds of people have come to him. Some of them have traveled quite a long distance. They've come not only to hear him, but because they're troubled. They need some kind of spiritual or physical healing. And in that context, Jesus teaches what might sound like a rather strange idea of blessedness. Now, how strange is it? Well, let me put it to you this way. Let's suppose that God appears to you tonight, and he comes up to you and says, I'm going to do a miracle for you for the year 2013. You get to choose how your year is going to go. And I'm going to give you an option between two choices. So here's option one. You can be poor, hungry, weeping, and hated by other people. Option number two is that you can be rich, well-fed, laughing, and spoken well of by other people. Now, quick, choose which one do you want, one or two. Which one would you choose, honestly speaking? Me too. Okay. Now, Given what Jesus says in Luke, it sure doesn't sound 
like God's plan is for us to be happy, at least not in the way that we would normally think of it. God may want us to be blessed, but whatever that means, it doesn't sound like happiness. So what does it mean to be blessed? Now please understand, Jesus is not saying that there's anything particularly wonderful about being poor or hungry or crying or hated by each other. I'm, I'm, I'm not wanting you to take these on as your New Year's resolutions. Okay, That's not what this is about. And on the other side, he's not saying that it's intrinsically evil to have money, to be well-fed, to laugh, or to be spoken well of by other people. I mean, think about Jesus himself. He fellowshiped with rich people. He ate meals with them, right? He pictured heaven as a sumptuous banquet. He seemed to enjoy a good joke. He made a few himself. And even though he had lots of enemies, there were plenty of people who were amazed at his teaching and spoke well of him indeed. So what is he saying? Well, let's take the first blessing and the first woe and contrast them and see what we can make out of that. He says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now think again about the context in which he says this, because he's speaking to a crowd of people who are desperate. They're downtrodden. They're coming to him for help. Before, they had little to no hope. And now, now they're being healed. So when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, what he's doing is he's confirming to them what it is that they've already experienced. In other, in other words, blessed are you who have nothing in the world's eyes. No money, no resources, no power. Because you've been taught, particularly in the context of Roman society, that you have no status. You have no value. But the kingdom of God belongs to you. And why? Is it because you earned it? No. It's because of who God is. And this is the God of whom the prophets spoke. This is the God who is the champion and the defender of the weak and the powerless. This is the God who cares about the poor. And that's what you just experienced. You came here looking for mercy and you received it. And so now receive the good news that goes along with that. Because the kingdom that you've been waiting for, even if you don't know it, is yours. And it's yours in the only way that it can be. By the grace and mercy of God. Now take that message and contrast it with the first woe. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. The poor are blessed because they've received a kingdom that they didn't earn, that they couldn't earn, that they couldn't even imagine possessing because of their low status. But what about the rich? Jesus isn't condemning them just for having money. The problem is that their riches have become their comfort. Their riches, riches have become their security. So they're not looking for anything else. So in this life, they have their riches. But in the life to come, they have nothing. God doesn't want us to be happy if it means finding our comfort in things like money, food, good times, or the good opinions of other people. These aren't bad things in and of themselves, but every single one of them can become the object of either addiction or idolatry. God doesn't want us to be happy. He wants us to be blessed. And so let's circle back 
to the quote from Eleanor Roosevelt and give it a little bit of a biblical twist. Blessedness is not a goal. It's a byproduct. And it's a byproduct of what? Of the pursuit of holiness and of God's kingdom. Well, now, of course, that opens up the discussion just a little bit. What does it mean to pursue holiness? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom? That's the subject for a whole lifetime of study and prayer and devotion and reflection. But let me suggest just one important application as we begin the new year and as I begin to wrap up this sermon. In a few minutes, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper together. It's a tradition of the church that in one form or another goes all the way back to Jesus, and I think it's a perfect way to begin a new year. But we shouldn't approach the ritual thoughtlessly. Paul actually warns the Christians in one of his letters that he wrote, the letter to the church in Corinth, he warns the Christians that they should examine themselves before coming to the Lord's table. Now, why is that? You can find the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the latter part of the chapter. We're not going to take the time to read it now, but I'd encourage you to look it up later. Let me set up the background for you because it's relevant to what's already been said. Here's the city of Corinth. It's a prosperous city of the Roman Empire. The church there would have been made up of believers from every level of society. There would have been rich people in the church which means they owned their own property, they had homes to live in, and they had slaves in their employ. And some of the believers would have been slaves themselves, or even former slaves, people who had been allowed to buy their freedom and now were trying to support themselves and work their way up in society. Now, in theory, at least, the cross was to have broken down the barriers of social class, between all of those people and bring them all together into one person's house to worship one God. And for Roman society, that's a pretty remarkable thing in and of itself. But there's a problem in the church, and Paul is pretty worked up about it. And we have to piece the situation together from what Paul actually writes in the letter. It seems that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was part of a larger ritual, a larger tradition in which the Christians in Corinth would come together in somebody's house to take a meal together. The more wealthy believers in the congregation probably gathered a little bit earlier because the poorer ones had jobs. They had to get off of work. They had to be released from their responsibilities. And they didn't exactly work regular nine to five kinds of hours, right? And so here you've got the wealthy people gathering together in the inner part of the house in a place that wouldn't have held a large crowd anyway, and they're feasting on good food, plenty of wine. And by the time the poorer members of the congregation show up, either the food is gone or the wealthy people aren't sharing it. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're deliberately snubbing the poorer members of the congregation. They were simply being Thoughtless. They weren't thinking about what they were doing. They were just going on with their usual habits. Now that meant that when that congregation came to take the Lord's Supper, the reality of the situation was you had the rich people over here and they were full and happy and you had the poor people over here in essentially what would have been like a courtyard and they were tired and hungry and then they were supposed to take the Lord's Supper. Now, I'm not saying that this is the situation at Hillside. What I want us to do is to think a little bit about what this means. Okay? Think about the passage and the situation in Corinth, and now think about 
the passage that we read from Luke. Blessed are the poor and the hungry, but woe to the rich and the well-fed. See, we want to be blessed. We want God to bless us. But we would also rather be rich and well-fed than poor and hungry. It would make us happier. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't choose that? But if we can learn anything from the situation of the church in Corinth, it might be this, that the pursuit of the things that the world tells us will make us happy can worm its way into the life of the church in ways that are an offense to God. Now, when I say church, I don't just mean hillside community church. I mean any gathering of believers, any relationship between believers in the body of Christ. And I don't know that the rich Christians in Corinth, again, were deliberately snubbing the poor ones or if they were even aware of what it was that they were doing to disgrace the other members of the congregation. They were simply enjoying themselves in the way that they were accustomed to, the way that they always had done things. They were doing what made them happy. But it wasn't holy. And it wasn't something that God could bless. They needed to stop and to think about what they were doing. They needed to stop and to think about the meaning of the Lord's Supper and the meaning of the bread and the cup. So here's my recommendation for a good start on the pursuit of holiness and blessedness in 2013. Let's examine ourselves before we come to the bread and the cup. We take the bread and the cup to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf to save us from our sin, to create a community of believers that's bonded together by love. But if I examine myself, then I have to ask myself the question, what is it about my own life that perhaps dishonors that sacrifice? I mean, we go through life pursuing our own goals and pursuing our happiness, and we do it oftentimes in a knee-jerk kind of way. We don't really think about what we're doing, but we can become slaves to the things that the world tells us will make us happy. So where do I need God to give me freedom? To help me to realize the freedom that I already have. And as I've gone around chasing my goals and doing my own thing, is there somebody that I've hurt along the way? And what does God want me to do about it? Or maybe as we meditate on the cross, we'll realize that we've taken the sacrifice itself for granted. Just like we said, you know, anything can make you happier for a while, but sooner or later you start to take it for granted. Have I done the same thing with the cross? Have I done the same thing with my salvation? Have I forgotten to be grateful? Have I forgotten to be forgiving to other people as God has forgiven me? Have I forgotten to show kindness and mercy the way that I myself have received the kindness and the mercy of God. And Lord, what do you want me to do about that? Ask God to speak to you through his Holy Spirit as we pray and as we prepare for the table. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for what you have done for us through your Son on the cross. And we don't want to take that for granted. And we realize that on any given day and in any given week, we just kind of go through our routines, pursuing our goals and doing the next thing on the list. And we're not aware 
of what it is that we are doing to dishonor you or to hurt other people. And we ask that as we begin this year and as we come to this table, that you would remind us of who it is that you have created us to be and that what you want more than anything else is for us to be holy because you are holy and you have called us into a relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. Speak to us now, for your servants are listening. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.